Good morning, church. Good to be here with you this morning. Good to get a chance to speak with you. Good to get a chance to kind of resume our, uh, our discussion of the story. Um, I want to start with just a, a little bit of a biography, small biography. And you may know it, you may not, but it's powerful uh, no matter how familiar you are with it. John Newton uh, was the author of what is arguably uh, the most well-known and impactful hymn of all time. Uh, Amazing Grace. And Newton wrote the song as he reflected on his life, and specifically reflecting on the incredible distance that God had gone to take him and cover uh, both interrupting the course of his life and bringing him from where he was to where he is and, and through the course of his life. Is my mic working? Is everybody still hearing me all right? Okay, it's sounding louder and not louder in my ears, so just making sure. All right. But as he reflected on his life, he, came, he, he was writing this song just about the distance that God had had to cover through his heart in order to bring him from the man he was into the man that he was becoming. And, and to sum up the story, John was a man that was running from everything about God. Uh, he was a compromised man. Uh, in, in every way, shape, and form. He was ruled by his impulses completely, whether that impulse was for anger or for lust or sensuality or addictive substance or anything else you could think of. John dove into it. Um, he was engaged in one of the most despicable careers of his time, uh, working his way through the ranks of slave trade. Um, and he was hauling boatloads of people out of Africa like they were cattle. And over time, John became just as dehumanized as the cargo that he was transporting. Um, And he began to act and think of himself as little better than an animal. And it's reflected in some of his diary and some of his journaling and, and what he thought about himself. And John's story is pretty predictable from the start. His trajectory looks pretty set. Um, he was either going to fight or drink or otherwise, you know, engage himself to death. Um, in running from God. And then the storm happened. It was off the coast of Ireland in 1748, and the boat that he was on that had just finished dropping off its cargo, the Greyhound, was caught in a severe storm. There was a hole, there was a hole, uh, there was a hole in the hull. Say that five times fast. Um, of the ship. And it began to take on water, and John is trapped down in the hall. And with that predictable end in sight, cries out to God for a different option. Cries out to God for deliverance, and deliverance shows up. Um, Through the shifting ropes break, cargo comes loose, blocks the hole. The ship is able to stagger back into port. And whether that is a direct finger of divine influence or whether that is just a bad job at tying up the cargo it changes everything about how John looks at life and John begins to re-examine his life and 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 while he would say his conversion would take some years before it actually he would actually come to the point where we would recognize him as the abolitionist Anglican minister that he ended up becoming that ends up penning the words, I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Um, 
John would recall that moment on the Greyhound as the divine interruption that changed the trajectory of his story and sent him, instead of running away from the arms of Christ, move into moving toward the arms of Christ again. And in total remembrance of that life, John would say in this self-penned epitaph that marks his tombstone that's still there in Buckinghamshire, England, it says this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. And those words sound a whole lot like our reading this morning in 1 Timothy, don't they? Uh, the words of a Jew who, like John Newton, has a before and an after story, as well as a before and after name. We know him as the Pharisee Saul and the evangelist Paul. And we've only got a few weeks left in our, in, our, in our study of the story that has started back in January as we've been looking at the Bible as narrative um, from beginning to end that God has been up to something from beginning to end, writing a story in the history of humanity and, and the challenge to find ourselves in the story of God. And I think that this week, as we look at the growth of the church in the book of Acts, we see a lot of these divine interruptions taking place in the lives of people and congregations in the early church. And most of them are actually decidedly not good. They don't look so exciting at the beginning. Um, they're disruptive in nature. They challenge the church to stop, and they bring the church up short, and they ask them to consider what is going on in the mission of Christ, what is going on in the world around them, and how to act accordingly in order to grow and to actually embrace the role that Christ has given them. And through the challenge of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Spirit, we see God moving through the church through difficulty and impacting the trajectory of the world's story through how the church chooses to respond. The first one that we see is in Acts chapter 7. Um, and one of the things that you see in the, in the very, very beginning of the Acts narrative on is that the disciples of Jesus from the very get-go, they're simply being called followers of the way of Jesus at this point, or followers of the way for short. Okay, they're already in conflict with the religious leaders of the day from the get-go. But it is kind of contained at this point. Because it's contained mostly to the religious political leaders, the Sadducees, the scribes, the people that are actually politically in cahoots with controlling the temple and working in that kind of uneasy peace politically with Rome. And whereas they, in order to keep the peace, sacrificed Christ... Followers of the way are saying, this one whom you've crucified is actually the Messiah. And so they're in contention, but that contention is kind of contained, but it moves outside of the Sanhedrin when Stephen starts to preach in Acts 7. See, Stephen's proclamation and the, the accusation that goes with it is bigger than a political statement. It's an identity statement against the, the missed assumptions of the Jewish people about their standing with God and what it really means to own the name Israel. Who cares if you've got the physical marks of covenant with God, says Stephen. 
if your heart and soul don't show them. It's a strike at the core of the Pharisee tradition that says it's by law and the observance of the law that Israel's made right with God. Instead, Stephen says it's always been the mercy of God, which is so eloquently displayed in the cross of Christ, that has made Israel right with God. And that they've all missed the point. And the result is not quite what you'd want from a challenging sermon, I don't think. Okay? Um, you know, you, you figure people are going to wrestle, you figure people are going to struggle. What you don't figure is they're going to pick up rocks and start throwing them at you. But at the same time, I think, I think Stephen, again, being full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, kind of knows where this is going to go. But knows that it needs to be set. And so he says it. And, and that sends the crowds over the tipping point because while, while the Sadducees are kind, of, are kind of viewed as, yes, they're the people in control, but they're not necessarily the populist people that we trust. The Pharisees and what they're doing, they're considered the, they're considered the popular view of the day. And so now the tipping point is reached and now the crowds move over the side. And, and where, whereas we see up in, in, in Acts chapter 1 through 6 where people are, are excited about what's going on in the church and people are, are, are being drawn to it and saying, what is God doing here? You know, this is very, very interesting. It's different, it's challenging, but it's interesting. We see that tipping point gets reached and the popular opinion sways a different direction. And we see the first wave of persecution begin against the church. Now, loss of life isn't the only threat with this persecution, okay? Many, many more than Stephen are faced with loss of income. Their influence dries up in Jerusalem. Loss of community. They get thrown out of their synagogues and their meeting places that were the, the anchor of the Jewish communal identity. Loss of home. They're, they're forced to disperse out through the Roman Empire to try and make a new start. They lose a lot. And from our perspective... In the lower story of humanity, this doesn't look like a good time for the church. This doesn't look like something that's going to further the influence of the church. If anything, it looks like the church is under attack and that it's not stable and that the foundation's not firm. But Luke is using this as an opportunity to kind of peel back the curtain and say, okay, Sometimes when we think things are going a specific way in our story and we don't have the attention or the intention to look at how God's story is intersecting our story, we can miss the fact that a lot of times God takes things that are difficult in our lives and actually gives us an opportunity to move in harmony with him. It's actually an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for change. It's an opportunity to be drawn further into him. And, and here's the interesting thing, okay? I, the Bible doesn't waste any time on trying to figure out whether this persecution is from God or not from God. It just is. I think that's a really important lesson for us because we can, we can find ourselves wasting a lot of time, I believe, 
looking at the circumstances of our life, sifting through the circumstances and trying to go, is this from God? Is this not from God? Is this God's will? Is this not God's will? We can, and, and, and there's both sides of it, right? We can get to the point where everything is just kind of coincidence and we're just kind of floating through. And, and there are a lot of people that kind of think that about life. We can go to the other side where, where it's very, very hyper God's will and like everything is God's will. And did I choose the right thing for breakfast this morning? Because is that in God's will for me or not? Okay. And I'm, I'm making light of that. Okay. But you understand what I mean. We can, we can, we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out is this in line with God's will? Is this not in line with God's will? And I don't think, or is this from God? Is this not from God? And it's interesting to me that the narrative of Acts isn't so much about does God cause this bad thing to happen or not? The narrative of Acts really holds out more of what do people that are followers of Jesus decide to do with the circumstances of their life? What is their level of attention? What is their level of intention? How do they move in response? Do they react? Or do they respond? Those are two very different things. One of the things that I think is interesting is that you see the church doesn't react. The church responds. Luke makes it really clear that as they they are dealing with these very, very difficult, life-threatening even circumstances of their life, In one very, very simple sentence, it says, And as they went, they preached the gospel. I don't think that means that that, that they moved with this surreal peace to where, like, the, the events of the day didn't affect them. I'm sure that there was a lot of heartache, and there was a lot of anxiety, and there was a lot of pain that they had to deal with. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that when we're dealing with struggles that we should just kind of float through it. No, it doesn't really matter. You know, I mean, it's, it is okay for the circumstances of our life to be difficult and to be painful and to hurt. But then the question that, that, that is put in front of us if we're looking to mirror the actions of the disciples is what do we do with that difficulty? How do we maintain our attention to what God is up to? How do we remain, our in, how do we remain with an intention to respond in accordance with the peace that God gives? The comfort that God gives. The faith that he affords and the provision that he brings, even in spite of difficulty. And because of the intention and the attention of the church, what could be something that's looking to stamp out a a, a fledgling, vulnerable church actually serves to help further the church's mission. If you remember that really the whole story of the church in Acts is built around the mandate of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, which is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Samaria, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And they might not realize all of the details as they're moving through it, but as they move through it, looking back on it, especially as as Luke and Paul are kind of getting together and recounting the history of all this and they're writing it down, they're going, wow, okay, so all of this is actually 
God moving in us because of our willingness to be attentive, because our willingness to keep our intentions He's actually fulfilling this mission. It's a very unlikely way to fulfill this mission. But he's actually working to do it. And we see that in some really, really particular ways. While the persecution begins to rage in Jerusalem, the story of the church expands into following one of these journeying disciples, Philip, as he makes his way out into Samaria. And surprisingly enough, the message of Christ begins to take root there. Not only is this the next chronological step in Jesus' stated mission for the church in Acts 1, it's also the first major hurdle in overcoming the idea that salvation in Christ is just a distinctly Jewish inheritance. So you have to understand, Samaritans are half-Jewish at best, okay? To call them half-breed would not have been an insult in the Jewish community, okay? And it wasn't just an ethnic thing, it was also a matter of commitment they had intermarried with the people that had conquered them. And they had adopted their lifestyle. And they kind of have this quasi-Jewish, syncretistic religion that's kind of one part Judaism and then one part Assyrian and Babylonian influence, okay? And, and, and so, and, and they live right next door. So they're, they're kind of like, they're kind of family, but they're kind of not. And they're kind of your neighbors and they're kind of not. And they're, and, they, and they're looked at as people who sold out instead of staying faithful. And God makes it really, really clear through the actions of the Holy Spirit and the response that Philip receives that the gospel is for them as well. But that's just the first barrier that God's going to knock down as the church is called to expand through Judea and the empire. Because after Samaria... Philip is whisked away by the influence of the Holy Spirit to a crossroad in southern Judea. And, and let me just say, what an interesting thought to be willing, if you're Philip, to let the Spirit move you from where all the, all the cool stuff seems to be happening to, like, the middle of this road where, like, it seems like nothing is happening. And to be okay with that. Because if I was Philip, I, I think I might have struggled with that. It was like, what, what, no, I, why are you moving me out of this over here? We've got a really good thing going here. Why are you, why are you like pulling the plug on this thing that looks really, really good and sending me over here to something that I, it looks really unfamiliar and I don't know what you're going to do. And yet he's willing to go. And he has this, this other encounter, an appointment with a court official from Ethiopia, randomly, who just kind of happens to be coming from Jerusalem on his chariot, you know, at the same time. And he's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile who, who has adhered to Jerusalem and, and adhered to the Jewish way of thought and adhered to following Yahweh even though he is not Jewish. And it's interesting that most of the tradition of North African Christianity will trace their history to this conversation between Philip and this Ethiopian court official. And that may not mean much to us, but you have to understand how much of a boundary breaker that is in Jewish thought. Someone who is not Jewish at all, even though they have committed themselves to following the law of God, is now, is now eligible for the salvation that's found in Christ. And then we look again, and Peter has his own kind of divine interruption in northern Judea, in the town of Joppa. And I love this, because do you remember, you know, if you think about the story, who else had a revelation from God when they were in Joppa? 
Anyone want to shout it out? Huh? Peter has one. Yes, Peter's having this one. Who had one in the Old Testament? Jonah. Jonah. And just like Jonah, Peter gets called to go give a message of salvation to the ruling empire of the day. Think about that for a second. Okay, we kind of, in, in a nutshell, the story of Jonah is he receives the message and goes, uh-uh, no way. We're the oppressed people. That's the empire. You want me to preach salvation to the empire? Forget that. You want me to go this way? I'm going this way. And this whole story of, of Peter and Cornelius is like a reversal of the story of Jonah, where, where the prophet of God receives the message to take salvation to the empire, and instead of saying no, he says yes. He says yes, and he is willing to go. He allows the Spirit of God to call the shots, and he goes to Caesarea. He goes to this empire town, and he meets this God-fearing, law-keeping Roman commander named Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his entire household to receive the Spirit, even while Peter's just telling them about Jesus. It's almost like God is like putting a neon sign up that says, This is okay. It's all right. I know what I'm doing. You can trust me. Because this, again, is an even bigger boundary breaker. Even members of the hated empire that choose to honor God and choose to call him Lord are eligible to receive the salvation of Christ Jesus. And again, I think this isn't as staggering for us as it should be because we've never lived in an oppressed state. But I will say that it is shaking the foundations of the Jewish identity for followers of the way. It's a big deal. It's a big enough deal that actually when Paul or when, when Peter gets back from, from his time in Caesarea, he actually has to go to Jerusalem and explain to the church in Jerusalem why he did this. Because it looks like he's going off the reservation. But he has to say, no, 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 you have to understand, God's spirit is up to something. We're seeing it in Samaria. We're seeing it, you know, with, with this encounter in southern Judea. Now we're seeing it in northern Judea. God seems to be expanding the circle. And we need to be able to be willing to let him do that, even though it's uncomfortable. But God isn't even done yet. I love that. He's got an even greater interruption planned to set the trajectory of the early church's mission to the ends of the earth. Not just Samaria, not just Judea, not just a few groups of people, but to all groups of people. And so in case we forgot about the persecution of Jerusalem, it is still going on strong. It's alive and it's well and it's expanding too. Not only is the persecution growing, it now has a face. It has a shining representative to those committed to purging Judaism of the poisonous influence of the way. It has a passionate, articulate, and fanatically driven young Pharisee named Saul behind it. Something breaks loose inside Saul in Acts 7 while he's holding the coats of the elder Pharisees initiating Stephen's execution. I don't know what it is. And he becomes captivated with this single unswerving priority to have anyone who would blaspheme the Lord the way that Stephen did or blaspheme his people the way that Stephen did, and is actually probably more, more on target 
share his fate in ruin or imprisonment or even death. And Saul begins to wage a one-man war against the way with the approval of the religious leaders. He is the reason that the church in Jerusalem goes underground. He is the reason that Philip is in Samaria and that Peter is in Joppa because they're priority targets in Saul's manhunt. And so they're not there. And the church seems rocked back on its heels and the opponents of the way seem to have the upper hand. And it reminds me of a time during a critical championship game. Here I go with football again. I'm sorry. Okay, but I... It's called The Drive, okay? It actually has its own name, okay, in, in Broncos lore history, okay? And it's this thing where, where there's only a few minutes of the game left. It's in the AFC Championship game, behind by a score, and have to drive the entire length of the field because they basically, like, muffed a punt, and they're sitting right back on their own goal line. And as they come together into the huddle to call the first play, a guy named Keith Bishop, one of the offensive guards, Everything just looks like it's absolutely just going just going down. And the offensive guard comes into the huddle and he goes, Well, boys, we've got them right where we want them. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit says in this situation. Got them right where I want them. Trust me. I know it looks like we're on our heels. I know it looks like everything's going down. I know it looks like there's a lot of change and we're totally unsettled and we're totally unfirm in our foundation I got them right where I want them. Watch this. God has a plan that's not only going to end the persecution in Jerusalem, he also is going to ensure the expansion of the kingdom of heaven throughout the entire Roman Empire. And the plan is to create another divine interruption, this time for Saul personally. As he's moving on the road to the town of Damascus to begin arresting people there out in Syria... All his plans are left on the shoulder of the highway. Someone slams on the stadium lights and a voice, the voice, starts speaking. And what it says knocks Saul off his donkey, literally and figuratively. And in one horrible instant, Saul comes to realize that he is not an agent of righteousness. Actually, he is a traitor to righteousness. That instead of acting in power and authority, he's been acting against the authority of the one who holds all authority. And he braces himself for the worst because if you think about it, from Paul's perspective, what is the price for such blasphemy? What is the price for such unrighteousness? What was Stephen's price? What does he deserve? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. What does he deserve? I wonder what I would be thinking if I were Saul in that situation. I think I might just be sending one last prayer hoping that my death would be rather painless and quick rather than extended like Stevens was. But instead of that, he gets the first of a lifetime of surprises, doesn't he? He ends up bewildered, he ends up befuddled, and not to mention blind, and in a borrowed room. And God leaves him without sight for a few days, so darkened that the only place he can look is inside himself. And he doesn't like what he sees. Because he sees himself for who he really is. To use the words of the reading this morning, the best example of the very worst sinner. And alone in his room with his sin on his conscience and blood on his hands, he begs to be cleansed. 
and Saul the legalist gets buried and Paul the evangelist gets born. And the Holy Spirit makes the ultimate battlefield move of power and mercy by turning the church's greatest threat into its most passionate evangelist. And so I guess it shouldn't be any surprise for us to see that the trajectory of Paul's mission throughout the rest of the book of Acts is to become known as the apostle to the Gentiles, the people who don't have any business being given God's salvation. Right? At least that's the popular thought. Because if you think about it, who really doesn't deserve God's mercy and salvation? Oh, Saul knows exactly who doesn't. It's him. And so why would it be any surprise that he spends himself going and looking for all of those who don't deserve it and letting them know that they do? Letting them know that it's, that it's available for them, right? And he puts the final piece in place that Philip and Barnabas and Peter have started to frame that the Holy Spirit's been working on through them, that Christ's mission isn't just to all places. It's to all people. When he says the ends of the earth, he's not talking about geographical locations. He's talking about anywhere that a person might find themselves. The gospel can reach to them. The gospel should reach to them. The gospel must reach to them. By Acts 15, the church has publicly decreed that salvation is for anyone who believes in Christ, regardless of whether they follow the law as a Jew or not. And I don't know how many of you in the audience are Jewish today. If you are, I'm, I think that's awesome, because God has given you the inheritance first. And I thank you so much that he has given you that inheritance. I am also very, very thankful that that inheritance is for all of us who are not as well that that salvation has become for us as well. Very, 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 very amazing move by God. But one that was all from the beginning, right? We hear it, we hear it in Isaiah chapter 49 that you will be a light to the nations. 400 years, 600 years even, before Paul's mission, God is already outlining what it's going to look like is that we would be a light to the nations. If we think about application of this, if we think about what is, how do we find our story in this story, I, just, I think there's just two things that really come to light and two things I really want us to hang on to when we think about this chapter of the story and this, this, this mission of Paul and the words of Paul and the life of Paul. And that's just simply this. God, through his spirit, makes two things clear for the church then and now. First, God's mission is still the same. God's mission is to make his mercy and his love and his salvation accessible to everyone. To everyone. Everywhere. And that he plans to use us to do that. And I believe that that is the attention and the intention that we need to have when we look at our lives. Regardless of whether circumstances are good 
or bad, whether, regardless of whether we're currently operating from places of strength or places of weakness. God's mission remains the same. And how we respond to God and whether these interruptions and disruptions in our life, I think a lot of times whether we can call them divine or not, has a lot to do with what is our attention. When, when we find ourselves in these places of difficulty, does our attention turn inward? Or does our attention turn outward? Does our attention just turn into, why is this happening to me? Or does this attention turn into, what does God want to do with this through me? I'm not saying we ignore the pain again. I'm not saying we ignore the difficulties of life. I'm not saying we go whistling in the dark with it. But at the same time, what is our attention? And what is our intention? But the other thing, I think, and this, and this may be even more important, is we look at the life of Saul. We look at the life of Paul. We look at, we look at the lives of Christians throughout history who were not Christian material. And the message, I think, continues to be clear. It doesn't matter how unlikely of a candidate you are. I don't care how difficult of a jump it would be to see yourself as being someone that is engaged in the mission of Jesus. What your history is, what your circumstances are, what your personality is, what your story is. Your story is God's story. And he still desires to do things with you. His gospel is still as accessible to you as it is to anybody. There's nothing that you have done or are doing or will do that will disqualify you from his mercy being available to you. And it doesn't matter how unlikely of a candidate you find yourself to be a disciple. I mean, you can't get any more disqualified by human standards than Saul. You can't. Okay? And his words are, are much like John Newton's of the, you know, it is only by the mercy of God that I, this person who spent so much time trying to destroy this faith, have by his grace and mercy had it preserved, restored, and been empowered and moved through me to be able to preach it. Isn't that really all of our stories? I mean... Personally, we've all spent time in our lives trying to destroy the power of the gospel in our lives. And yet, in the middle of that, God has redeemed and restored us and made us proclaimers of the thing that we tried to destroy in ourselves, right? If you just introduce somebody to their sin, what you have is a broken person. If you just introduce somebody to God without an understanding of their sin, you have a self-righteous person. But when you have an understanding of sin and you have an understanding of the great grace of the Savior and you put those things in one heart, then you get a disciple. And that's what God wants to create in every single one of us. That's the goal of his story for each of us, is to create disciples in us, disciples that create disciples as we go. And God says, you know, I want to create that divine interruption inside of you that will then impact the world around you. 
And so my prayer for us is that we will consider how he is doing that in us and through us. And that we will pay attention in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our stories, in the midst of our strengths and our weaknesses to see the story that he is writing in us. A story of redemption that's not just for us, but a story of redemption that's for the world around us as they see the gospel moving in our lives. Let's pray together. Oh God, how great is your grace, how great is your love, and how great is your power that you have called us from where we were and the distance that your grace has covered to bring us into your presence. And, And we just say, you are amazing and thank you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in each of us and it would captivate our attention. That it would empower us with intention to go and be messengers of that grace. That we would go be distributors of your grace in the world around us. To know that nobody is is disqualified from your salvation, especially not us. And so if we can't if we can't be disqualified, then neither is anybody else around us. No matter no matter how far written off they may appear to be, Lord. Help us to see people the way that you see them. Help us to see life with your mission the way that you see it. We love you, Lord. We are thankful for your great grace that was displayed so magnificently in the cross and the grave and the resurrection of your son Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray and proclaim.